Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. All right, I want to welcome you to our era of Rosh Hashanah service. And I want to welcome everyone watching uh, on our live, uh, YouTube live as well, uh, for, from home on our live stream. So, Haksameach. Haksameach. Okay, thank you. We got a podium here. Right here, middle center. Thank you. All right. This marks the beginning of the High Holy Days. Uh, and I thought, what better theme for the High Holy Days, because it is the High Holy Days, than the theme of holiness. Uh, both God's supreme attribute of holiness and his call to us, especially uh, on this high holy day season of repentance, of Teshuvah, where the Lord calls us to be holy, even as he is holy. And what better text uh, to explore this theme on Rosh Hashanah than than the text that discusses the blowing of the shofar. And so I want to explore this theme uh, by looking at the famous passage from Yeshua, from Joshua, uh, the captain of the Lord of hosts, from Joshua 5, uh, beginning in verse 13. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, uh, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a sword drawn in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I've now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground, but in reverence, and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy. And and Joshua did so. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because the Israelites, nobody went out, nobody came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I've I've delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry the shofars or the ram's horns, uh, shofars of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests, with the the, uh, kohanim, uh, blowing the shofarim. When you hear the sound of a long blast on the shofars, like we just heard, (laughs) have the whole army give a loud shout, then the wall of the city will collapse, and the army will go up, everyone straight in. This passage discusses the holiness of God. And anyone trying to preach on the holiness of God has to feel like David trying to wear armor too big for him. (laughs) This is perhaps the key attribute of God. Now this passage we read takes place uh, with Joshua the night before the great battle of Jericho. Um, We get a glimpse of of three things here on the overhead about the holiness of God. We get a glimpse of number one, the holy Lord. Number two, the holy servant. And, And three, the holy servant of the Lord. So we have the holy Lord, the holy servant, and the holy servant of the Lord. So first, let's get a glimpse of the holy Lord himself. Joshua is camped outside of Jericho, uh, and he looks up. Uh, now, what's he doing? Uh, what's he doing out there in the middle of the night before the battle? Now, remember, 40 years before this, God had brought us, had brought uh, the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, brought us up to the promised land uh, of Israel. 
Now Israel was populated by the Canaanites at that time who were hostile to God's people. So there's going to be a fight over the land. Uh, And so our people, the Hebrew people, the Israelites, uh, we sent spies in to spy out the land. But when the spies came back, as you know, all but two brought a bad report. Uh, And they said, we'll never be able to take these fortified cities. Uh, They'll slaughter us. And the only two who said, no, God, we can do this. God's with us, uh, were Joshua and Caleb. And because the people rebelled against God, God sent them back out into the wilderness to wander for 40 years until uh, that that, uh, faithless generation had died off. All except Joshua and Caleb. Now, it's 40 years later. Joshua is bringing the children of Israel into the promised land. And he's standing in front of the first of those great fortified cities, Jericho. And why is he standing there? Because he knows that those cowardly spies from 40 years ago, they'd actually been right about one thing. Joshua knows they had absolutely no technological or military capacity or capability to take that city. They couldn't get in past those massive walls. So tomorrow they're going to just throw themselves on those defenses. But they have absolutely no human hope of getting through. So he's out there the night before wondering, what are we going to do? And he's praying to the Lord for guidance and direction. And this is the setting where he looks up and he sees a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword. So he sees this warrior in battle array. Now, now, what does a drawn sword mean? People don't walk around, do they, with a bent bow unless they're about to shoot. And people didn't have their sword drawn unless they're about to attack. So here's Joshua on the field of battle. He sees a man he does not recognize, uh, an armed man with a drawn sword. So he goes up to him and he does the right thing. He challenges him. Joshua 5, 13. Joshua went up and asked him, are you for us or our enemies? Which is another way of saying, choose this day whom you will serve. No neutrality. Are you for us or for them? If you're for them, we're going to fight. If you're for us, I want you to bow the knee to me, Joshua is saying. There's no neutrality here. There are your two options. You either bow to me or you fight me. And what does the man say? Are you for us or for them? And literally in Hebrew, he says, no. <laughs> Translated here as Neither. <laughs> And he basically says, you're asking the wrong question. Look at Joshua 5.14. As commander of the Lord's army, captain of the army of the Lord, I've now come. On the overhead, here's what he's saying. He's saying the issue, and the next slide, the overhead. The issue isn't whether I'm on, can you go to the next slide please? Uh, The issue is not whether I'm on your side or not. The issue is, are you on my side or not? There's no neutrality. Uh, Fight me or bow to me. Those are the only two choices. Uh, So what does Joshua do? Joshua 5.14. I guess we've got to go back. Joshua 5.14. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence. The actual Hebrew, shatach, it means to worship. Now, Jews, we Jews, we don't worship human beings. Or we don't worship angels. Because angels are created. We Jews only worship the Lord God, our creator. And so Joshua knew who he was standing before, 
who he's standing in front of. And he falls down in worship. And the man accepts this worship. Then the man, the captain of the Lord of hosts, he says in Joshua 5.15, Take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. And Joshua did so. And the statement about, about taking off your shoes for the place you're standing is holy ground. It's almost an identical recap of what happened to Moses at the burning bush back in Exodus 3. Moses meets the Lord in the burning bush. Uh, technically, the text says it was the angel of the Lord in the burning bush. Which is, I believe, a Christophany, a, a pre-incarnate manifestation of Yeshua. Which I believe also the captain of the Lord of hosts and here in Joshua 5 is, is as well. And note that the appearance of the Lord in the burning bush, like this captain of the Lord of hosts, it's both breathtaking and scary. And once Moses and Joshua see that these manifestations are actually the Lord himself, the first attribute in both cases the Lord speaks about is his holiness. Look at Exodus 3 verse 5. Don't come any closer, God says. Take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. The first thing the Lord mentions in both accounts is his holiness. Same with Isaiah. When the Lord appears to him, the first thing he mentions is his holiness. Now, there are lots of of different attributes of God. God is loving. Uh, He's powerful. He's sovereign. He's wise. He's good. He's merciful and compassionate. He's faithful. But but the thing that's almost always referred to first is his holiness. Think of of, of the Ruach Elohim, the Spirit of God. The spirit of God is how God manifests his influence in the world. What is the adjective that God himself chooses to describe his spirit? Because this is the spirit of God. Yes, he's a loving spirit. He's a powerful spirit. He's a wise spirit. On the overhead, what is the name of this spirit? He is the Holy Spirit. Because when you get to holiness, you get into the very center of who God is. Out of the overhead. What is holiness? Holiness, the holiness of God is his incomparable, transcendent perfection by which he brooks no rivals and brooks no impurity. Let me repeat that. The holiness of God is his is an incomparable, transcendent perfection by which he brooks no rivals and brooks no uh, impurity. So, first, he's incomparable. The holiness of God means that there's, there's none like him. First Samuel 2.2. 2, there's no one holy like the Lord. There's no one beside you. Miriam proclaims in Exodus 15.11. She proclaims, Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the hosts? Who is like unto thee, glorious in holiness, awesome in praise, doing wonders? Notice how Miriam, she sings of the Lord's holiness. Uh, he's glorious in his holiness. We sang that this evening. And there's no one like him in this way. His holiness is incomparable. Isaiah always speaks of the Lord as the Holy One. Look at Isaiah 46.9. The Lord says, I am God and there's no one else. I'm God and there's no one like me. Psalm 86.8. There's no one like you, O Lord. So one of the things holiness means is that God is unmatched. Uh, he is unequal. Uh, he's unrivaled. 
There's no one on his level. No one can compare to him on the overhead. Second thing we see about holiness, it means the Lord is absolutely perfect, just, righteous, good, pure. Revelation 15.4, you alone are holy. Your righteous acts have been revealed. Psalm 18.30, it's for God his ways perfect. His word is flawless. And throughout the Bible, such as Leviticus 19.2, we're told, be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Other places, like Matthew 5.48, we're told, be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. There's a reason why Joshua falls face down at the presence of the Lord, in the, who's manifesting in the person of the captain of the Lord of hosts. If the holiness of God is his absolute flawlessness, his absolute perfection, his absolute righteousness, perfect purity, that is traumatic. On the overhead, why is it traumatic? It's traumatic because he's incomparable. Meaning, when we compare ourselves to him, we see that we are lost. We see that we are flawed. We see that we're sinful. We see that we're dependent. And we feel utterly inadequate. Because we are. So, for example, when Peter gets a sense of of Yeshua's incomparable perfection, he says in in Luke 5, verse 8, Depart from me, O Lord, for I'm a sinful man. When Isaiah sees God high and lifted up at the temple, and he, and, he, and he hears the seraphim cry, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. What does Isaiah say? Isaiah 6, verse 5. Woe is me, for I'm undone. From a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now what's so striking here is that Isaiah was a prophet, remember, uh, which is a type of preacher. Uh, so his lips, his, his ability to speak was the thing he was most proud of, uh, the thing he felt best about. But when he gets into the presence of the holiness of God, the very best thing that he feels most proud of looks like trash. You see, for example, if you think you're good looking uh, or talented or smart, and then you stand next to someone who's a hundred times more good looking or talented or smart. How do you feel? You feel like you're in the presence of a burning bush. (laughs) It's both incredibly attractive as well as incredibly traumatic. Uh, Because the light makes you see your darkness. The beauty makes you see your ugliness. Because because of the power of it, the perfection of it, uh, it makes you see your weakness on the the overhead. Uh, And so the holiness of God is God's incomparable transcendent perfection that reveals our sin and our lostness. Years ago, I was speaking with a woman. I asked her, when did you become a believer, a Yeshua follower? And she said, well, when I was 12, I heard the gospel and I professed faith in Yeshua and I was, I was immersed. Uh, but then she says on, on the overhead, however, it was about four years ago that something happened to me. I realized that God's claims were enormous. I always believed in him, but I realized I couldn't just have him in my life as my helper. I realized that every single square inch, every corner of my life had to be changed and brought into line with what God wanted. It's been revolutionary. She says it was both hard and wonderful. On the overhead, what was she describing? 
she was falling face down. She had begun to experience his holiness. She had always believed in the Lord, but now she realized he was holy. And the overhead, meaning he's incomparable. He brooks no rivals in her life. And he's absolutely perfect, and he brooks no impurities in her life. And when she saw that, it changed everything. Uh, she says, it's been hard, but wonderful. And guess what that is? That's the holiness of God on the overhead. And you know, it's possible, out of selfish motives, to be attracted to some of God's activities, like God's love. Uh, why? Oh, why? Because God's going to do good things for you. Or, or it's possible just to be attracted to his mercy out of selfish motives or out of, out of guilt. You want his mercy because you feel guilty. Or, or be attracted to his power because God can solve your problems. It's possible to have a very self-centered heart and be attracted to God's love or mercy or power on the overhead. But only if God has begun to truly change your life are you attracted to his holiness. Only if you're truly walking with him out of a regenerated heart do you find his holiness beautiful. Because it's the most threatening of all his attributes. It's the most demanding of all his attributes. And it's also the one that can change your life the most if you start to come to grips with it. And that's what this woman began to see. So that's a glimpse of the Holy Lord. Uh, as soon as, as the Lord shows up, he starts talking about his holiness. He is holy. And the overhead. Secondly, what does that mean for us? How are we to become a holy servant? The Bible says if you serve a holy Lord, you yourself must be holy. That's why Yeshua says in Matthew 5.48, to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's why uh, in Leviticus 19.2, it, it says, uh, Vayikra, uh, be holy as I, the Lord your God, am holy. And so right away, Joshua asks, what must I do? And in Joshua 5.14, he says, what message does my Lord have for his servant? And in verse 15, the commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals, for the place you are standing is holy ground. Honor my holiness by taking off your sandals. Okay, what's that about? Here are two traits of a holy servant. Someone serving the Holy Lord. What does it mean for us to be holy? Two things on the overhead. Number one, to be exclusively, undividedly, unconditionally obedient to God. And number two, to be different from the world. Number one, to be exclusively, undividedly, undividedly and unconditionally Obedient to God. And number two, to be distinct, to be different, to be separate uh, from the world. So first, what does it mean to be obedient to God? What's wrong with the sandals? The book of Leviticus contains what's known as the holiness codes. And it doesn't, does not just talk about holy people. It also talks about holy things. Uh, holy utensils. Uh, holy pots and pans and vessels. Holy articles of clothing. Now, when we think about what it means for someone to be holy, we typically think that a holy person is a moral person. Well, then, how can a utensil be moral? <laughs> how can a pot be moral? They can't. Yet the Torah says a pot can be holy. Why? How? Because there's a definition of holiness that it can include both a person and a pot. 
A pot was holy if it was used only in the service of God. In the book of Leviticus, the opposite of holy is not sinful. It's common. There's a holy use and a common use. So, for example, you could not come into the temple or the tabernacle in sandals that you wore for common use. They had to be sandals dedicated only to standing before God. You couldn't use a pot to mix your daily bread and then bring a grain offering with that same pot before the Lord. On the overhead, what it means to be holy is to be exclusively committed to God. No rivals, exclusively committed to God. You know, the Pharisees were moral, very moral, but it was an unholy morality. Why? Because they were doing it for them, for themselves. It was not a matter of being exclusively committed to God. No, they were doing it for them. Uh, They were doing it because it got them social status. Uh, That's why they wanted to walk around with special clothing, an extra long seat seat, uh, easily seen. They wanted the honor in the public square and the best seats in the synagogue. They did it to feel superior to other people. Look how moral I am uh, compared to the masses. Uh, They did it to get control of God. Uh, I'm obedient, God, so now you've got to answer my prayers and bless me. They were not moral for the sake of God. They were doing it for themselves. That woman I spoke to years ago who said she had not understood the holiness of God for a long time. She was a very moral person. She said she had always attended weekly worship services, always prayed, always read her Bible, uh, always led a very moral life. But she said, you know, when I think about it, I was actually doing it for my kids. She said, I realized that everything in my life revolved around my children. What made me happy, what animated my life, was to know that my children loved me and were successful in life. And I realized that I'd have a meltdown if my kids didn't obey me. And I'd freak out if my kids misbehaved. And I began to realize that, yes, I'm praying and I'm reading the Bible and I'm attending shul uh, and I'm being very moral, but I'm doing it for my children, whereas instead I need to put God first. Now, what was, what was happening to her soul? She was coming to grips with what it meant to be holy. She wasn't going from being immoral to moral. No, she was going from doing things for herself to doing things for God. And that's the whole point. Joshua, he comes up and says, hey, are you, are you going to help me take the city of Jericho? And God says, that's the wrong question. You're trying to impose a condition. Uh, you're saying, I'll serve you, O oh God, if, if you help my children to, to turn out okay. Or, I'll serve you, O God, if you help me take that city. But the Lord says, that's the wrong question. You follow me. You bow to me. Regardless of conditions. Because if you say, I'll serve you if, that's not serving me at all. You're serving that condition that you want me to fulfill. And you're using me to get it. But I am holy. And I brook no rivals. I will have no rivals in your devotion to me. There are many good things. Raising godly children. Taking Jericho. (laughs) But even these good things, they're not me. And if you're using me to obtain these other ends, your life is not revolving around me and you're not holy. On the overhead. 
You're not even beginning to become holy unless you can say, Lord, I am going to obey you unconditionally. I'm going to do what you command, whether I like it or not. I'm going to accept whatever you send me, whether I like it or not. I'm never going to say, I'll obey you if. Because that's a condition, and whatever's on the other side of that if, the other side of that condition, that's my real God. It's a rival to you, the one and only true God. I'll obey you if you help me take the fortified city. I'll obey you if you help me advance in my career. If that's your attitude, you are a Pharisee. You're doing it all for yourself. You may be moral, but you haven't even begun yet to be holy. Holiness is exclusive commitment. Exclusive obedience to God. But it's also this. It's also an undivided heart. Look at Psalm 86, verse 8. There's none like you, O Lord. So give me an undivided heart to fear your name. If you decide that that, that two years from now you're going to be an Olympic athlete, uh, you're going to be in the Olympics, uh, you're going to go for a medal, that means your Olympic training for the next two years is not some mere department in your life. (laughs) It is your life. You don't say, well, for 20 hours a week, I'll be in training. But the rest of the time, I can do what I want. You know that's not true. Your coach becomes like God for you for the next two years. (laughs) Because your coach is going to say to you, absolutely everything that you do, everything you do has to be focused on that one goal. Everything you eat, 24-7, your bedtime, everywhere you go, how often you travel, everything has to be subservient to that one Olympic goal. If you're an Olympic athlete, every ounce, every fiber, every inch of you is stuffed down into a laser beam headed for one thing. Everything is made subservient to that one goal. Everything that can't be made subservient is ditched. That's a picture of holiness on the overhead. Because the ultimate goal is pleasing God and serving God. And this cannot be a mere department in your life. Or else you're not holy. It means you must be wholly set apart for him, not partially. On the overhead. Holiness means you're wholly dedicated to the Lord. Not partially to him. Partially to other things. He brooks no rivals. Holiness means you you are fully and wholly set apart. Wholly dedicated to the Lord. The second aspect of holiness comes from what the Hebrew word for holy, kadosh, literally means. It means separate. Uh, So so a pot can be holy if it's been separated exclusively for use of the Lord. And it means it has come out of something else. We're supposed to come out of the world system to be different from the world. 1 Peter 2 says we're to be a a great kadosh, a, a holy nation. Now the early Messianic believers, they grew like wildfire. Why? How do they grow? Uh, Why did so many people become Yeshua followers in the first three centuries after the death and resurrection of Yeshua? Was it because they had great preachers? Everybody brought their friends to hear them? No. Messianic faith was actually illegal and persecuted in the Roman Empire. You could not have these big public meetings where you brought in non-believers. In fact, only baptized believers were allowed into the worship services. The deacons, the shamashim, they were the bouncers. 
<laughs> to check to see whether, you, whether or not you were really a believer. Uh, they could not have just anyone there because you could be a spy for Rome. Uh, and the report, everybody who was there, and, and you would all be arrested. Okay, well then how did people hear the gospel? How, how, were, they, how were they attracted to it? It was the lives and the personal testimonies of the believers themselves. They were holy, meaning they were different. Now, this doesn't mean they were weird. It just means they were different. The early believers stuck out in the Greco-Roman Empire, the the Greco-Roman pagan world, in four key ways on the overhead. Uh, Integrity, sympathy, chastity, generosity on the overhead. Number one, radical integrity. The Messianic believers were scrupulously honest. Number two, sympathy. In an honor and shame culture, they were not for vengeance, but for forgiveness. Number three in the overhead, uh, chastity. No sex outside of marriage. Number four, generosity. Unbelievably committed to helping the poor and sharing with others what they had. You got that? Integrity, sympathy, chastity, generosity. And because they were different in these four key ways, they had this amazingly powerful impact on the entire Roman Empire. They were not weird. They were different. They were holy. And as a result, people were attracted to them. Now, what about us? In every culture, in every century, the challenge for Yeshua followers is to be holy. That is, not to be conformed to the world. Here are three examples. In the old Anglo-Saxon world of Northern Europe, uh, that was a real honor and shame culture. Uh, It was all about vengeance. Uh, It was all about your honor. Uh, About holding your honor. So so if somebody dishonored you, you would slaughter their whole family. (laughs) Now Europe became uh, a society that purported to follow Yeshua around the year 1000 A.D. And yet the shame and honor culture remained. Uh, For example, dueling continued to be widespread despite the church condemning it. Uh, Dueling was commonplace actually all the way up to the 20th century. If you, if you dishonored someone, they would challenge you to a duel. You know, pistols at dawn. What's that all about? Is that in the Bible? No. Is that part of a Yeshua follower's mindset of sympathy and forgiveness? No. That was a lingering remnant of the old paganism that would not die. It was a place where the believers failed to be holy. What about us? Are we quick to forgive? Or do we hold grudges? Do we let a root of bitterness divide us and defile us? Second, what about the biblical ethic of chastity? Plenty of people, especially young people, claim to be believers, yet engage in sexual immorality, i.e. sex outside of marriage. And many more engage in pornography. Now, you can make all sorts of excuses and rationalizations, but the bottom line, you're not treating God as holy. And you're not being holy. You're not being different and set apart from the world. Now, maybe your life is marked by generosity, uh, but not chastity. But you've got to have all four. You should not be like the world. We're called on these high holy days to be renewed in our commitment to holiness. 
The shofar is a call to repentance and holiness. Be ye holy, even as I, the Lord, am holy. So on the overhead, number one, that's the holy Lord. And number two, that's us, the holy servant. That's who we should be. So finally, now let's look at number three, the holy servant of the Lord. Let's learn about this particular person who shows up and speaks to Joshua before the battle of Jericho. This mysterious figure, he shows up. What do we learn from him? Joshua didn't get a burning bush. He got a person. He got a figure that looks like a human being. And what do we learn? We learn three things on the overhead. Number one, we learn this. If his people need delivering, like the Israelites did to help them conquer Jericho, if his people need delivering, God will become human. Who is this person in Joshua 5? You know, throughout the talk, throughout the Hebrew scriptures, there's a very strange human-looking person who keeps showing up and talking as if he's God. It starts with Hagar, exiled out in the desert. The text says, the Malach Elohim, the angel of the Lord, not an angel, but the angel of the Lord, appeared to her. Now, if you try to worship an angel, uh, uh, like, like Michael or Gabriel, the angel says, get up. I'm just a creature. I'm just a created being like you. I'm just an angel of the Lord. Don't worship me. But the angel of the Lord, uh, he's, he's, he's kind of like God. He's separate from God. And at the same time, he's also somehow God himself. Because when the angel of the Lord speaks, God speaks. The angel of the Lord is the one, the, the being that actually appears in the burning bush. The angel of the Lord is in the pillar of fire, we're told. It's the, actually the angel of the Lord, if you read the text in Genesis 22, who tells Abraham not to kill his son. The angel of the Lord appears here, I believe, in the captain of the Lord of hosts. Throughout the Tanakh, the angel of the Lord appears and speaks as if he is God. On the overhead, uh, Alec Motier, who's a well-known Bible scholar, he writes this. It seems to be, by means of the angel of the Lord... God can come along, can come among people safely. The angel is revealed as a merciful accommodation whereby the Holy Lord can be present among a sinful people. When if he were to go among them himself, his presence would consume them. Thus the angel of the Lord is that mode of divinity whereby the Holy God can keep company with sinful people. Now does this, does this, does this remind you of anyone? <laughs> And and Motir, he goes on to say this on the overhead. There's only one other in the Bible who's both identical with and yet distinct from God. One who, without abandoning the full essence and prerogatives of deity or diminishing the divine holiness, nonetheless is able to accommodate himself to the company of sinners. And who, while affirming the wrath of God, is yet a a supreme display of his outreaching mercy. Thus, the angel of the Lord in the Hebrew scriptures can be appreciated only if we understand him as a pre-incarnate appearance of Yeshua himself. So first of all, we look at, we look at this figure in Joshua 5, and we see that if God needs to deliver this to deliver his people, he will become human. He does this here. He does this especially, of course, and ultimately in the person of Yeshua himself. On the overhead, number two. Second thing we learn about this mysterious figure is the sword. Why do you think Joshua is so scared when he realizes who he's talking to? He sees a drawn sword. 
Another great Bible commentator, Edmund Clowney, uh, he, he writes this on the overhead. No man is prepared to confront the drawn sword of the Lord. Joshua should have feared that the Lord would come against him as an adversary to engage him in combat. As he had engaged Jacob at the Jabbok. At the Jabbok. Uh, when Joshua realized who this was, and he saw the drawn sword, do you know what the drawn sword represented? When Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden of their, for their sin, they were exiled from paradise and from the Eschayim, from the tree of life, what was placed between them and the tree of life? An angel with a flaming sword. And what it, what it's telling us is the wages of sin is death. And no one can eat of this tree of life because we have turned from the Lord. So for Joshua to see the Lord with his drawn sword, of course he falls face down. Because he probably thought he was a goner. And yet as it turns out, the sword was not against him. The sword was for him. Now the Lord says this in Joshua 5.14. As commander of the army of the Lord, I've now come. And then he says, well, we're going to take this city, Jericho. Uh, Joshua, you and me. Now how can this be? How can the sword of the Lord be for sinners instead of against them? Only because Yeshua himself came. Now consider how Yeshua describes his coming. He comes to earth, he goes to the cross, he takes the punishment that we deserve so that the holy God can now live among us. He is the angel of the Lord. In fact, he says he's the angel. He says this in John eight fifty eight: Before Abraham was, I am. Who is I am? It's the name by which the angel in the burning bush describes himself. So Yeshua is saying, I am the angel. The angel of the burning bush, the angel of the Lord. And he goes to the cross and he takes the punishment. But the night before he died, he's praying to God in the upper room at the last Pesach Seder. And he says, I'm about to die. He says, tells his disciples, I've come for this purpose. And then looking at them, he says this in John 17, 19. For their sake, I sanctify myself. Sanctify, it means to make holy. For their sake, I make myself holy. Now, what does that mean? Isn't, he, isn't Yeshua already perfectly moral? Yes, of course. But he's talking about the other meaning of holiness. The other aspect of holiness. What's he doing? He says, I am focused wholly on one thing. I'm absolutely setting myself apart for one thing. I'm fully committed to one thing and one thing only. To go to the cross as an atonement for the sins of the world. To save all who would repent and follow me. And thus, he separates himself for this one purpose. He makes himself holy for us. He sets himself apart for us. He gave himself away. Uh, He exclusively committed uh, to go to the tree, the execution stake, uh, for, for his disciples, for his followers' sake, he says. And there it is. He took the sword by setting himself apart. By sanctifying himself, he became holy for us. And that's why you should be holy for him. Romans 12.1 I beseech you, brethren, in view of the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Note that Paul says here that to be, being holy is reasonable. It's a reasonable service. Why? 
Now you see the real motivation for being holy and why it's reasonable to be holy. On the overhead, for how can you come to grips with someone who's given himself utterly for you without you giving yourself utterly for him? To not do so is the ultimate offense against God. How can you not commit to be holy when he has become so holy for you? And he was holy for you. W-H-O-L-L-Y as well. Uh, He gave himself completely and fully and wholly for you. So how can you not give yourself wholly for him? Therefore the Lord commands us, be holy even as I, the Lord your God, am holy. On the overhead. Uh, And when you see and embrace what he has done for you, you can be holy. And when you see and embrace what he did for you, you will want to be holy. Unless you are loved and moved... But what Yeshua did for you, you will not find the holiness of God attractive. But in Yeshua, it is gorgeous. On the overhead, one last thing as we close. We only learn, number one, that God will become human if we need him to. Number two, Yeshua took the sword. But we also learn, finally, number three, that we can have courage. Joshua was scared of the upcoming battle. But God shows up. And he says, I am holy and I want you to be holy. And now I'm going to to help you do what humanly would be impossible. In Joshua 6, we read that Jericho was tightly shut up. But the Lord says, that doesn't matter. I want you to do this. Uh, The the priests marching around the walls with the shofars. uh, The Ark of the the Covenant. And the seventh day marched seven times and blow the trumpets. And the walls will come crumbling down. The point is, through the work of Yeshua, the the sword of the Lord is not against you, but it is for you. And if God is for you, who can be against you? So you can go out in confidence. Because he is holy and you are being made holy in him. And so on this air of Rosh Hashanah, commit yourself fully and wholly to the Lord. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Hallelujah. Let the music team to come on up. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you for this Rosh Hashanah, this, this Yom Shirah, this Feast of Trumpets. And Lord, we declare you are holy. You're perfect, you're just, you're righteous, you're good, you're pure, you're set apart from the world. So Lord, help us tonight, not only to believe in you, but to see that you are holy. And you command us to be holy as well. Help us, Lord, to be your holy servant. Help us to be exclusively, undividedly, unconditionally obedient to you, Yeshua. And set apart from the world. Set apart to serve you. Exclusively committed to you. No rival first loves in our life. That our number one priority be to follow you. Lord Yeshua, let my life beginning tonight revolve around you. I commit to obeying you unconditionally. Whether I like it or not. I commit to accepting whatever you send in my life. Whether, whether I like it or not. Because holiness is an exclusive commitment It's unconditional obedience to you, Lord, with an undivided heart that's wholly yours. Because my ultimate life goal is to please you, Yeshua. To serve you, to love you, uh, to worship you. So set me apart, Lord, this Rosh Hashanah. Set me apart, Lord, Yeshua, with a heart fully dedicated to you. And like the early believers who set the world on fire, let my life be characterized by integrity, uh, by forgiveness, by purity. By generosity, 
which are attributes of your kingdom. So this Rosh Hashanah, we present ourselves to you, Lord, as a living sacrifice, wholly dedicated to you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Hak Sameach.